Welcome. Welcome to the Fast Guys Sub Podcast, where we make biblical theology simple, practical, and fun so that we can love God and others more. I'm Conrad, and my favorite Nicolas Cage movie is Con Air. I said, put the bunny back in the box. And I'm Jesse, and my favorite Nicolas Cage movie is The Wicker Man. No, not the bees! We're just two guys trying to follow Jesus, hanging out in the studio with our Bibles and guitars. We take just 30 minutes to chat about a theological topic and renew our minds with the good things of Christ. So what are we chatting about today? Well, today we're asking, how does the world end? Stick a fork in it. It's done. <laughs> Bing. So here's one thing we know for certain, Conrad. What's the that? world is going to end. Definitely. And while the Bible is full of passages about how the world ends, most Christians don't really know what the Bible says. Yeah. So this leads to a lot of assumptions and confusion. So today we're going to go over what the Bible says about future events so that we can understand what we're supposed to be doing now. Right on. Okay, so most Christians are familiar with that the Bible says that Christ will return, and Christ's return to earth is basically what signifies the end of the world. So that's what we're really covering today is what are the events surrounding the return of Christ, and does the Bible say anything about the events leading up to the return of Christ? Good question. So the first thing that we have to ask is, well, how do we know what's actually going to happen? The thing is that God exists out of time and space, right? Like he's not right. He's not bound to time and space. So he exists outside of the past, present, and future. And he can see all of the entire timeline, kind of like how we look at a book. Right. We exist, exist outside of the book, out of the timeline of the book, out of the characters of the book. So at any time, we can just flip to the back of the book and see what happens. So it's the same thing with God. And the thing is, he's given us this book. From his perspective, all this stuff has already happened and he's given to us. So we can just flip to the back of the book and actually see what happens. Right. And when we think about that, it's amazingly kind that God would give us that kind of insight just enough so that we wouldn't be anxious and would have a lot of hope that he's going to take control of everything. Exactly. And that keyword is hope. So as we're going through all this stuff, yes, whenever the movies and stuff talk about the end of the world, it's a bad thing. But for Christians, it gives us hope. Jesse, have you seen the bumper sticker about... What, what What's the most famous bumper sticker that you've seen about the end of the world? I feel like I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah. Like a bumper sticker says something to the extent of, in case of rapture, this car will no longer be operated. Right, exactly. So for people who are driving around and who are also unfamiliar with what the Bible says about the end of the world, well, that's what they're going to end up believing what Christians think because you don't see other bumper stickers with opposing interpretations of the Bible of the end of the world going around. Because the other major interpretations basically say, well, when Christ returns, that's it for everybody. Right. But that would make for a really boring bumper sticker. Like, why would you put a bumper sticker on your car that said, in case of Christ's return, no one will be around to read this bumper sticker? <laughs> because in most major end times interpretations, the, the return of Christ is a singular event. Christ returns, and that's it for everyone on this world. But this, the bumper sticker view, further popularized by the Left Behind series of books and movies, has split the return of Christ from a singular event 
into three distinct events. Those events being one, a rapture, where Christ gathers and removes all Christians from the earth, followed by two, a period of seven years where those who are left will face what is called the Great Tribulation, which is then followed by three, the final return of Christ, which is where the world ends. Right. And I think that this is probably maybe the, ma- the majority view of Christians. What do you think? It's certainly the most famous one. It's yeah. one that's famous, I think, in part because it's a little weird. Mm-hmm. Like we, we talk about all these like little details about like, well, are all my clothes going to stay here? Like, will my contacts pop out of my yeah. eyes yeah. when I suddenly get raptured? Like you'll literally be sitting next to somebody and they'll just be gone. Yeah. So it's freaky. And so it draws a lot of attention. Yeah. And also just the kind of the allure to it is people look into Revelation and go, are these ha- things happening now? Right. And there is a lot of language in the book of Revelation that is meant to allegorize something. So this idea that, well, maybe the locusts are like helicopters. helicopters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're on the same page. We've heard, we've all heard these things many, many times. Okay, so how in the world did this view become the most popular view for Christians and therefore what non-Christians think that Christians believe? That's a great question, Conrad. Well, to answer this, do you see that box I put on your desk? Yeah, I do. This is like a strain. It's heavy. It's stone. It's got these really elaborate carvings in it of what looks like some kind of ancient people. Yeah. What is this thing? So this is a a way for us to get like the the history and past events. So uh, what I want you to do is put your hands on the box. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now say, I have a question to ask a question about the past. I have a question to ask a question about the past. What is going on? What is this? What is this thing? What did you put on my desk? Who has woken me from my slumber? Okay, first off, I had no idea you were sleeping. Who are you? Why are you in this box? Well, I'm glad you asked. Boom, boom, if you have a question to ask, a question of the past, great knowledge you'll obtain when you call out my name. I'm the historical oracle. Boom, boom, that's me! So, um, Mr. Oracle. Yes? I'm glad you're here because I do have questions about the past. Oh, do you? Yes. That's why I'm here. So, for instance, why are there so many Nicolas Cage movies? Well, I don't know. That's mainly about the present. You would have to ask my brother, Present Pete. (laughs) I am the historical (laughs) oracle. I'm mainly about the past. Uh, If you weren't so scary, this would be more funny. Oh, well, I'm a very friendly entity. (laughs) So what were you doing in the box, I have to ask? Oh, well, I've been slumbering (laughs) from the last time that somebody woke me from my slumber. But here's the thing. You have to admit, it's kind of creepy to sleep in a box. Well, I'm not a human. Humans don't sleep in boxes. Oracle sleep in boxes. Well, yeah, it's very natural for us. That's my bad. I guess I hadn't realized that. Have you never met an oracle before? <laughs> this is my first time. Oh, I'm so glad it's happening on a podcast. Well, I'm honored to be the first oracle that you've met. <laughs> so we need to get down to business. Oh, mi- good. Mr. Oracle. Here's what I'm really after. I'm trying to figure out why it is that this whole view of the rapture is so popular. Tell me you have an opinion on this. Why? Yes. 
Well, for almost 1800 years since the New Testament, the church has believed that the return of Christ was a single event that ushered in the end of the world. But in 1830, a man named John Nelson Darby came up with a very different way. <laughs> I, uh, I have a, a puppy dog in my box, apparently. Is that apparently. an oracle puppy? Yes, an oracle puppy. He can tell you about the future, if you could understand him. His name is Future Frank. <laughs> future Frank, please go away for a little bit. Let, let the historical oracle talk for a while. That is some box. <laughs> So, where was I? In 1830, a man named John Nelson Darby came up with a very different way of looking at the Bible. He interpreted the Bible in, way, in a way no church denominations ever done before. So included in this new system was a different view of the end times. Up until Darby, most theologians understood that the return of Christ was a single event. But Darby split it up into three events. A secret rapture, where living Christians are removed from the world, followed by seven years of tribulation, and then the return of Christ. About 70 years later, in 1909, one guy named C.I. Schofield wanted to publish a study Bible. He decided to include Darby's new variant system. And since entire denominations used this Bible, entire denominations simply thought that what they were reading came from a system of theology vetted over centuries, when really it just came from one guy. So hold up. Yes? You're telling me you have full knowledge of all these crazy historical events. Oh yes, I can see many things in the past. Alright, so if that's true, yes. what was John Nelson Darby's favorite topping on pizza? Oh, easy. It was pineapple. <laughs> and anchovies. It was very weird. <laughs> his wife didn't like that very much because his breath smelled. Which was weirder then, his theology or his taste in pizza toppings? Oh, his theology. <laughs> <laughs> so, so sorry, I interrupted you. You just basically rocked our worlds with this long string of historical information. Yes. Do you have more to oh, say about yes, that? Oh, yes, because that's not it. Oh, of course not. Yeah, please go ahead. Well, in the ancient 1970s, this view became even more popular when a man named Hal Lindsey, who bought into Darby's view, released a best-selling book called The Late Great Planet Earth, where he said the events predicted in Revelation were being fulfilled at that point. He said the Bible predicts that the Soviet Union would invade Israel and the Antichrist would rule over Europe. How Lindsay went on to say, and I quote, The decade of the 1980s could very well be the last decade of history as we know it. Christians totally bought into this, and the book sold tens of millions of copies. It was also, listen to this, this is even more interesting. <laughs> Please. It was turned into a movie narrated by Orson Welles. Really? Yes, Mr. Citizen Kane himself. To spread it even more, in 1972, there was a movie released called A Thief in the Night, where after the rapture, a young woman finds herself left behind and has to struggle to survive through the tribulation. Wow, you really know a lot about the rapture. Yes, I've seen these movies. <laughs> so what happened after the ancient 1970s? We've got the Schofield Bible. We've got Hal Lindsey. We've got A Thief in the Night making all this stuff. Is there more to the story? Yes, and that's where we basically get to today. 
after The Thief in the Night, and that actually had a series of movies, <laughs> then came out the Left Behind series. Okay. Have you heard of the Left Behind series? Yes, I have, actually. Yes, it's a series of books, and then <laughs> they, it would turn into movies by none other than the star of Growing Pains, Kirk Cameron. Oh, I remember him. Yes, but even greater than Kirk Cameron would come a greater movie star, one foretold from long ago, the most glorious actor of all time, and the one who was prophesied from ancient times would star in his own Left Behind movie. And you know who that was? Please tell me. It was Nicolas Cage. (laughs) (laughs) So, Conrad and I were talking about this earlier, and I I feel like it's only appropriate to bring you in to this conversation with this question. What is your favorite Nicolas Cage movie, Mr. Oracle? Well, my favorite Nicolas Cage movie of all time, of course, is City of Angels. (laughs) Really? That's an interesting choice. Why is City of Angels your favorite Nicolas Cage movie? I'm glad you asked. Well, City of Angels is a 1998 American romantic fantasy film directed by Brad Sterling (laughs) and starring Nicolas Cage and Meg Ryan. City of Angels tells the story of an angel, Cage, who falls in love with a mortal woman, Ryan, and wishes to become human in order to be with her. The remake was released to financial success but mixed reviews, with some critics judging it to be a mawkish adaptation. That is a really thorough description of the movie. Yes, my library is quite extensive. It seems that way. And that's it. That's the story about how Darby's Left Behind You got to be so popular. Well, I'm getting sleepy. I need to take a nap. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing with me. So I have now a clear understanding of where this whole rapture thing came from, why it's like so dominant in our culture. Can I, can I call you history? You can call me. On a first name basis or historical? I'm sorry. Histy. Short for historical oracle. I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Well, that's what my friends call me. Just get in the box, please. Okay, I'm getting in the box. Could you you close the lid? Yes. Thank you. Man, that was super weird. Yeah, that was really weird. Thanks for giving me that box, by the way, and having me open that. Yeah, I I found it. uh, It was mailed to me. I don't know where it came from. Yeah, you shouldn't open boxes that are mailed to you. You don't know where they come from. I get so many packages. Okay. I, I just open them all. Listen, the next time there's an oracle that wants to talk to us, I, you're going to be the one asking the questions. Okay, okay that sounds good. <laughs> okay, the, so the weird thing is, I was actually raised on this view. Really? Like, I saw the movie A Thief in the Night. And um, so like, I just thought that everyone believed that there was a, a secret rapture, seven years of tribulation, and then the final return of Christ. Is it The Thief in the Night better or worse than City of Angels? Or is it the same movie? <laughs> <laughs> City of Angels is a sequel to A Thief in the Night. Meg so, Ryan is living in the tribulation. <laughs> and the angel Nicolas Cage has compassion on her and becomes mortal to save her. So when you were growing up and watching those movies and hearing that worldview, that particular explanation for how mm-hmm. the world ended, what in that like appealed to you? So it really wasn't the allure of it. I just happened to be raised in a denomination that held that view. So when you don't know much about a particular topic, you just assume other people know more. Right. But at some point, I wanted to learn more about the end times passages because I thought it would be cool if I could defend the position. But the more I looked into it, it became apparent that this view didn't have much scriptural support. 
And it was really apparent that the passages were really talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and not the end of the world. So then when I was looking at other views, it looked like they had much more biblical support. And everything we're talking about here sometimes goes by this really fancy name called eschatology. Fancy. Yeah. And that's really just understanding or studying the final events in history. And it comes from this really cool Greek word eschatos, which means last, and ology just means the study of. So it's really the study of the last things. Okay. So let's see what the Bible actually has to say about the last things. Okay. Good idea. This is what the Apostle Paul writes to Thessalonians about the return of Jesus. Okay. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Right. So this covers the first problem I had with the Darby left behind end times view is because these verses make it seem like the return of Christ is just one event. It's not three separate events. There's no mention of a rapture, seven years of tribulation, and then the return of Christ. Exactly. Christ comes down. He catches us all up who are alive to be with him and the dead will be raised. It all happens synchronously. And then the second problem that I had was I couldn't find any passages talking about a seven year tribulation and times are not. The third problem I had was the two passages, the two prophecies outside of Revelation that they use to support their end times view, which are Daniel's prophecy and Christ's prophecy are clearly talking about the judgment of Israel and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. Yes, it was talking about a end time, but not the end time. So these three things together really convinced me that this view is on really weak ground, if not completely unsupported. So people who believe in Darby's view looked at two prophecies, Daniel's and Christ's, which both talk about signs leading up to a certain event. So many theologians think it's pretty clear that the passage is talking about signs leading up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But Darby said, no, wait, it's talking about signs leading up to the final return of Christ. So here's the setting for Daniel's prophecy so we can see what it's talking about. So in 587 BC, Babylon defeated Israel, they destroyed the temple, and they took them into captivity. So while in exile, Daniel receives this prophecy that God says, one, Jerusalem and the temple will be rebuilt. And then about 500 years later, the Messiah will arrive. He will then be killed, after which the temple and the city will be destroyed by war, all of which comes to pass. So it's pretty clear that this passage is talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and not talking about the final return of Christ. Now, with Christ's prophecy, when he was on the Mount of Olives near the rebuilt temple, Christ confirms this prophecy and adds signs of when it will happen how it will happen, and he actually gives a time limit. So the passage starts off with the disciples talking about how awesome the temple is. Then Christ goes, well, don't get too attached to it because the temple is going to be destroyed. So the Bible is really clear that it's talking about the destruction of the temple and not talking about the final return of Christ. And actually, this is where a lot of non-Christians try to use Christ's prophecy to prove that Christ isn't the Son of God because they think it's talking about the end times and it didn't come true within that generation. So they're like, well, he's not God. But when you know it's clearly talking about the temple, you know that this was all fulfilled down to minute details. So first, let's start off with the time limit Christ gives his prophecy. He says, truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things has happened. And so Christ prophesied this around 33 AD, and not even 40 years later, in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. So now we have to ask, well, did Christ get the signs leading up to the destruction right? He predicted that 
they will be persecuted, which happened just six years prior to the temple's destruction in 64 AD when Nero organized the first persecution of Christians. He also predicted that Jerusalem would be surrounded by armies, which is what happened in, uh, when the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem. He said there will be false prophets, which there were, according to the Roman historian Josephus. Right. He also said that there will be signs in heaven, which again, the Roman historian reports happening. He also mentioned the abomination of desolation that Daniel referenced, so we know we're talking about the same thing. And this came to pass when the Romans entered the temple and performed their pagan sacrifices. And of course, he predicted that not one stone will be left on another, which is what happened when the Roman the Romans completely destroyed the temple. He also said that the judgment would come through war, which is what happened, and also that the destruction would be caused by Gentiles. So all of that came to pass. And on top of that, Christ explains why. He says it's a judgment of Israel. So if you end up looking up these verses, especially in Matthew, just know that everything we read in Matthew before verse 34 has to happen before that generation passes. But anything after that verse isn't held to the same time constraint. So it might be possible that the passage immediately following, starting at verse 36, now switches to, to talking about the final return of Christ. Right. This is all to say that this Darby left behind view still has no support for this partial return and seven years of tribulation. Right. Okay, well, that's great and everything, but what about the book of Revelation? So if you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, it's the very last book of the Bible, and most people think it's talking about the events just prior to the end of the world. So Revelation is mainly broken up into three parts. One, messages to seven churches that were around at the time of its writing. Two, judgment, including the judgment of Babylon. And three, at the tail end, it shows us our future in heaven. What it does not talk about is the return of Christ, much less if it's one event or three. It doesn't even talk about how the world ends. It simply jumps to after the world ends when everyone stand, has to stand before the great white throne of Christ which is where each of us will have to give account for their lives. And that's where your fate depends on whether during your life you had faith in Christ. So the relevant portion to our episode is the second part, the judgment part of Revelation. What is it talking about? And the main question is, is this judgment part, just like the rest of Old Testament prophecy judgments, predicting judgment on a people group that was close at hand, or does it break from Old Testament prophecies and predict something way into the future? Right. So a lot of theologians I trust make a compelling case that the judgment section of Revelation, which includes a judgment of Babylon, was simply a prophecy for the upcoming judgment on Rome and the Roman Empire. So basically, Revelation could have simply been a letter of encouragement to the first century church saying, hey, guess what? Your persecution is coming up, but know that God is sovereign through it all and he will judge your oppressors. And either if you die in the persecution or if you live through it, just know that you have heaven to look forward to. So Revelation was given to the Apostle John through the Holy Spirit to write down for us. And it seems very reasonable that not only was God perhaps saying something about the future, but he's also saying something to the people group at that time about what they might experience. Right. So it could be very well that the only future events, from our perspective at least, listed in Revelation is the great white throne and heaven or hell. So this entire exercise of people like Hal Lindsey of trying to predict the future from these judgment prophecies and revelation is doubly bad because one, it probably isn't even talking about future events. And two, even if it was talking about future events, it could be very well talking about events that's going to happen a hundred years from now. So any attempt to match our current politics with revelation would be totally pointless. Right. So Jesse, now that we know that Daniel Christ and revelation can't be used to predict the end times, and that they can't be used to support 
the Darby left behind view, where does that leave us? How is the world going to end? Well, in the end, all Christians who follow the scriptures closely believe that there will be a visible and bodily return of Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. that there's going to be a resurrection of all people from every age, and that there will be a judgment on all people from every age. The word that the Bible used to describe this coming back of Jesus is this fun Greek word called parousia, and it's really specific because it refers not only to this coming of this hidden divinity, one with power, but it's also used in the Bible in a civil sense to describe the visit of a high-ranking official. So in other words, Jesus is coming with an agenda. He's coming back with power and he's coming back with authority. Mm -hmm. And so this judgment that he brings is a judgment that asks, do you believe in me or not? That is, we all know that we have this cosmic debt. We have this Mm -hmm. sin. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. And so we realize that we have transgressed some kind of law. We're guilty. And the question Jesus brings before us is, do you trust in me? to offer you forgiveness, having paid that debt on your behalf. And if you do, then that day of judgment is a glorious day. Yeah. Because coming and being righted with God, coming into his presence, guilt-free, knowing that Jesus has cleansed you and taken that guilt on himself. But if you do not believe in Christ to have done that for you on your behalf, then it's going to be an eternal suffering, a damnation, being condemned to be separated from God for all of eternity. Right. And this is why we wanted to cover this. We really wanted to highlight the reality of this, uh, that everyone's going to die. But we spend our free time distracting ourselves from this fact. But if there is a God and he is just, right. then there is judgment coming. And every time that we didn't show love to others or to him, all of that is going to come into account. And there's something that Jesus said in the book of Matthew that I think is really helpful for helping us to understand why this is important on this particular day as we're hearing this. So Jesus says to his followers, For as they were in the days of Noah, so will it be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So just like we might be prepared for when our boss is going to come back from a business trip, and we need to be ready to provide the materials, the resources, the projects we've worked on. In the same way, Christ is basically saying here, be about the kingdom business, be exactly. about loving God and loving others and get serious about it because there is a timestamp where yes. all of this will end. And so it's better for you to be prepared now and to always be kind of click and dragging the, the future into the present by realizing that Jesus is coming back. That's a for real thing. Right. Okay. So to, to wrap this up, Our view about the end of the world is just one of the many topics that we see disagreement on. And with so many doctrines and denominations out there, we find ourselves changing views on a ton of stuff over the course of our lives. But the important thing to understand is what we believe to be true should be supported by the word of God and not just because we learned it from whoever. Right. That being said, there are different levels of being wrong. The main thing that we can't be wrong about is, of course, that Christ is God. Underneath that, there are views that are important, but not salvation critical. And these are the types of views that affect our relationships with God and others. Then finally, there are things that are least important. And these things are like the nice to knows, the views that don't fundamentally alter our relationship with God and others, such as our view of how the world will end. And the least important part of a discussion about the end of the world is the order of events. So that's nothing we should ever be dogmatic about. The more important part of the discussion is the reality of the end of the world because it should fundamentally change how we live our lives. Because when we know the world will end, we end up caring less about material things, less about earthly events, and we start caring more about what matters to God, which is our relationships to each other and our relationship to Him. So, 
By keeping an eye on eternity, we can go out there and focus on what matters most to God, which is to love God, love others. That's it. Well, that's all the time we have today for the end times. Please tell a friend about this podcast and remember to subscribe to the Fast God Stuff podcast. Fast God Stuff is a proud member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. And please check out fastgodstuff.com for all kinds of content that will help you put the bunny back in the box. And as long as Jesus doesn't come back, until next time, love God, love others, that's that's it. it!